lovely Maple Grove, Minnesota, and SixFootMama.com. This is Still Growing with Jennifer Ebling. Still Growing is a gardening podcast dedicated to helping you and your garden grow. Hi there, everyone, and welcome to Still Growing, and thank you for listening. I'm your host, Jennifer Ebling. In today's show, we learn all about a unique feature of the Henry Ford West Bloomfield Hospital. It's their greenhouse, and my guest is Trevor Johnson, the resident farmer overseeing the hospital greenhouse and coordinating various educational programs, tours, and classes. That's coming up after the Garden News Roundup. But first, I'd like to start out with a an update on the listener community for the show. I've created a free private Facebook group for listeners of the show, and the group is called the Still Growing Podcast Group. So if you're not yet a member of the listener community on Facebook, I'd love for you to join for free. Just head over to Facebook and look up the term Still Growing Podcast Group, and then our group will pop up and you can just request to join, and I'll admit you into the group. Another easy way to find the group if you struggle to kind of search for for things on Facebook is head on over to my website at the number six, ftmama.com, that's sixfootmama.com, and right at the top in the menu is a link to the Facebook group. So you can just click on that link. It will take you right into the group and then just request to join. Once you're a member of the group, there are a lot of great benefits, including quality content. All of the posts that I share in the Garden News Roundup are there, plus I share additional things that I curate for you in between episodes. So if you're interested in getting good quality garden news, make sure you join the group. And I'd love to stay connected with you in between episodes. So you can ask questions and I'll do my best to answer them. If I don't know the answer, I will reach out to many gardening experts that I interact with regularly and see if I can't find an answer for you. And not only that, but you'll get a chance to interact with guests of the show yourself. In fact, any Anytime I produce an episode that has a guest, I always invite the guest to join the listener community. And that was my vision for the group when I created it, that it would be a place for listeners of the show and the guest experts that are on the show to come together and continue the conversation beyond the podcast. So if you have questions after listening to any episode, please reach out to the guests that are in the group. And there are a ton of guests that are in the group including such great folks as Josh Volk. He was the author of the book Compact Farms. He was just in episode 560. Jody McKee is an herbalist. She's going to be in an episode coming up later this month, and she has fantastic information on the medicinal uses of herbs. So she would be a great person to reach out for that. And then, of course, other wonderful guests include Megan Kane. She's the creative vegetable gardener out of Wisconsin. Anything you have to know about growing vegetables, you can find out probably from Megan. She's an expert in that area, as well as Joel Karsten, the author of the fabulous book, Straw Bale Garden. So that's just naming a handful of guests, but I think you'll find there are a lot of wonderful resources in the group for you. So you not only get to interact with guests of the show, but you also get to interact with other listeners of the show. And listeners are posting really fun, wonderfully 
creative posts as well. So Patricia Chandler Newport just shared images of her spring and summer garden. Very inspiring. She's got a wonderful garden greenhouse as well as Lots of ornamentals, so a beautiful combination of edibles and ornamentals in her garden. I shared a Facebook Live video. I was out shopping in a greenhouse, and I was trying to pick between some photos of mushrooms that I wanted for my mudroom, and so I had everybody vote on the two that I should get. And then, of course, Green Circle Trailhead shared recently a very nice post on snow fleas. So that got shared. Sometimes people have never seen this before, so this was a really great post to show folks what snow fleas look like. And then Patricia Chandler Newport also shared a post about how to create a tubing bender using a palette. And this sparked a lot of conversation. David Lawson had chimed in with a resource on something that's actually designed to bend tubing. That was off of the website harborfreight.com. And then my guest Josh Volk chimed in and talked about the version that he uses, which is from Johnny's Select Seeds. Josh suggested making the form for a quarter circle and then bending to the center on both sides. He said it's a bit easier than bending the entire arc from one side. So again, this is for folks who are interested in creating some type of tubing, those half circle tubings in the garden to support row cover. And then, of course, on gardening websites everywhere, people cannot stop talking about the super bloom that's hitting the California deserts thanks to all of the rain. So as I find these tremendous images, I continue to share those with the group. So don't forget to check out the Still Growing podcast group the next time you're in Facebook. Just look it up in the search bar and you'll see it pop up and then you can request to join. Oh, by the way, it is also the only place that I will go to pick winners for any of the giveaways that are associated with the podcast. So if you're ever listening to an episode and you hear about a giveaway, you'll have to be in the group first in order to participate in that. Speaking of participating, this week I will be launching a survey for listeners of the podcast. So if you have feedback you'd like to share, head on over to the Facebook group and I will have a link to the survey and I'll pin it right to the top of the group. And then that survey will be active for a couple of weeks. I think it'll close probably at the end of March. So make sure you head on over to the group. I would love to get your feedback on the podcast and make sure that the show is staying very listener driven, which is the goal that I have for the show. I also want to make sure that I welcome new members to the community this week. And we had a lot of new members. So I want to make sure that I give everyone a shout out. I'd like to welcome Beth Norman Sletta from Newall, Minnesota, Stacy Clippinger, Michael Glanzer of Tulsa, Oklahoma, Becky Armbruster, Bonnie Heath-Bell, Heidi Wojcik-Bertles, Terry Medugno, Denise Vick, Stephanie Mills, Angie Latouri, Clint Bowers, Josh Volk, he's the author of Compact Farms, and he was in episode 560, Wanda Vanderveen, Magina Maffi, Jessica Zenda Crane, and Jody McKee. And Jody will be featured in episode 564. It's an upcoming episode, and we talk all about a skill she has spent a long time learning about, herbalism. And she has a new website coming out as well in addition to a number of very exciting classes. So I was thrilled to get a chance to speak with her. 
All right. So that's it for new members. Welcome, you guys. And don't forget, I'd love to see you in the group as well. All right, it's time for the Garden News Roundup. For the guest update this week, Laura Eubanks of Design for Serenity. She's a master of working with succulents, and she was featured in that double episode in episode 540 with Benedict Van Heems of The Big Bug Hunt. Anyway, Laura shared this really striking image, and it was by a designer, Tanea Lord of Round Two Designs in Texas. And Laura said she knocks it out of the park with this old typewriter turned succulent container. So what Tanea did is she took an old typewriter. This is a brown typewriter with turquoise keys. It's very striking. She turned it in to a planter for succulents. So at the top where you would insert a piece of paper, it's loaded with succulents, but it's an adorable repurposing of a typewriter and so clever to use succulents because you wouldn't need to add so much water to this old you know, piece of hardware and it could stay looking good for quite some time. It, anyway, it was just very, very clever because that little half moon area where the typewriter keys are, you can insert a container in there. And then, of of course, succulents just do not need a ton of water. So you can preserve the integrity of that typewriter for a long time using succulents. And it was just an adorable repurposing. I loved it. In sustainability this week, there were two posts. The first is one that was very popular on some other forums in Instagram and in Pinterest, and it's how to regrow food in water. And it highlights 10 foods that regrow without dirt. So these are typically produce items that you're going to buy from the grocery store, and then you're going to put them in water and have them regrow. And the first thing that they share is how to do that with salary. So they talk about the 10 items that they recommend, and they are bok choy, cabbage, carrot greens, celery, fennel, garlic chives, green onion, leeks, lemongrass, and lettuce. And then they list a ton of others that are also viably regrown using this method. Also in sustainability is a longer piece that was from afar.com, and it talks about Mexico City's farm-to-table movement and how it's saving the small farms in Mexico City. And I was very surprised when I read this article at the amount of green space in Mexico City because, get this, more than half of Mexico City is green space, and that is just not what I imagined. Anyway, it's a wonderful article, and it talks about this local organization called Yolcon. I apologize if I'm butchering the name here. I don't know Spanish. But for the past six years, the director of this program has worked very hard to develop relationships with some of the city's top chefs and with some of the most important farmers, and then linking the two communities. It's a great story, and the pictures are incredibly vibrant. That's what initially drew my attention to this article. So you'll have to check it out. In continuing Ed this week, there were four posts that caught my eye. The first was from autumn757 at wordpress.com. She wrote a cute little post called Top 10 Organic Gardening and Horticultural Books Think Spring, and then she shared some of her favorites. Most of these have been around for a while, such as the book on mini farming or The Market Gardener, in addition to the great book Teeming with Fungi and Organic Mushroom Farming and Mycoremediation. 
So lots of great recommendations in this post. There was a nice article that had been shared last year in the Gardener's Workshop, and it was actually shared on April 22nd. So I wanted to get ahead of this topic a little bit and share it with you now. And it's called Seed Starting Troubles. And this was great. It was by Lisa Mason Ziegler. And she starts out by saying, in my travels of teaching others the how-tos and no-nos of seed starting, I find these to be the most common issues folks are dealing with. So she said to avoid these seed starting mistakes. And then she goes on to give very elaborate answers. I'm going to just review them quickly with you here. If one of them captures your attention, just head on over to the Facebook group and you'll find the article there. So these are the things that made her list. Starting too early, seeds that are dead when you start, so make sure your seeds are viable, planting seeds directly out in the garden when they prefer to be started indoors, that's a big one, skipping a seedling heat mat, so make sure you have your heat mats, and then not using grow lights. Gotta have a grow light. Anyway, it's a wonderful little overview for anyone who's attempting to start seeds indoors this year. Great little troubleshooting guide. The Washington Post shared a great article this past week, and it was featuring the mother of mulch, Ruth Stout. And the title is called More Vegetables, Less Work, Lessons from the Mother of Mulch. So I shared this article, but then I also discovered this really fun documentary thanks to this article, because in the article, it was talking about Arthur Moken's 23-minute documentary on YouTube that's called Ruth Stout's Garden. And we get to see her at 92 years old planting potatoes that she's just brought up from winter storage with long white sprouts. And she rakes away the mulch, she tosses them on the ground, and then she puts the mulch back, and then she's all done. It's a real treasure that this interview was captured on film and that we can still see it today. And bonus, you get to see a little bit about her family history in that video as well. Well, House Beautiful shared a really wonderful post called, Why Peonies Are the Ultimate Queen of Spring Flower. And I think what made this article extra special is that it's by farmer Erin Benzikine. She's the author of the new book, Cut Flower Garden. And she shares everything that you could possibly want to know about the gorgeous peony. And sometime later this spring, I'll tell you about my peony story, but I'm going to save it for later this spring when my peonies start blooming. In the DIY segment, there were also four articles that made the cut. The first is a DIY self-watering transplant tray that was shared back in 2011 on VegetableGardener.com. I thought it was a great idea. It uses plastic storage containers. It's very easy to put together, and I thought it was genius. So again, this is a DIY self-watering transplant tray, and I share it all in the Garden News Roundup this week and in the Facebook group. Also in DIY is this article from House Beautiful that features five common houseplant health problems and how to fix them. If you've managed to keep your houseplants alive this long, now is the time to inspect them before they make their venture outside. So give them a good look over, and then if you run into trouble, use this article as a troubleshooting guide. There was a great article in MNN.com, and it's all about how to design a potager garden. Beautiful pictures in this post. It's very inspiring, and this is a great summer project. 
And then my very favorite post that made the DIY segment is this article that was in apartmenttherapy.com, and it says, five wedding trends you haven't heard about yet. These were awesome. The first showed someone doing a live painting of the wedding. So they brought in a painter to the wedding. The painter sets up in the back and then does a painting of the wedding. It's amazing. I thought that was a great idea. But the second idea is why I picked it for our group, because it says, forget the flowers for the wedding bouquet. Greenery is Pantone's color of the year. So why not forgo flowers for a beautiful bouquet of greens? And then they show this gorgeous picture of a bouquet that's just greens, and it's made by Layers Photography. And then my idea was to tuck a few artificial greens, some of the artificial succulents or just some artificial greenery piece that the bride could keep as a keepsake. I thought it was a great idea. Very sweet. They also said that after this long season of only doing low centerpieces, they said, expect to see super tall trumpet centerpieces, floral chandeliers, and overhead installations. Those will be the new design trends with flowers for the table. And then there's two more awesome trends here. I don't want to share them. I'm going to make you go to the group to get them, but they are super cool. I loved this article. In the Plant Spotlight this week is an article I've been meaning to share for quite some time, and it's talking about frankincense, myrrh, and amber. These are tree resin facts and uses that are shared in this article. So if you didn't realize that they were tree resins, they are... And there's a lot of fascinating information in this article. And then I also picked out this plant that's called Blue Vervain because I talked about it with my guest Jody McKee in this upcoming episode where we're talking about herbalism. And I thought it would be nice to introduce you to this plant now so that when we talk about it on the show in a few weeks, you'll already be somewhat familiar with it. The In the News feature this week has a number of different posts. The first is this article from Fast Coexist, and it's about a vertical farm that is growing what they consider to be the world's first post-organic produce. That's very interesting. Then there was this really fashion-forward trend that was identified on core77.com. The title was called Introducing Plants into the Home Through Utility, Not Decoration. This features the designer Beth Esponet, who sees more potential for houseplants use in the home. And she's tested this by introducing plants and then derivative material into products like clocks, lights, and stools. This is very design-forward thinking when it comes to incorporating plants into the home. You kind of have to see this article to believe it. And then the last piece in the news was all about Uganda because they are drawing insights from Vietnam's coffee market success. So they're beginning to grow coffee and they're, they need to learn from the lessons Vietnam has to share so that they can experience the same level of success. In the Dream Guest segment this week, there's a bonsai master that takes his hobbit-sized trees to the Philadelphia Flower Show. This is a, an 82-year-old bonsai master named Chase Rosada, and there's a great picture of him pruning the bonsai as he's getting ready for the show. In fact, one of his Japanese maple bonsais, he started in 1958 as a seedling. 
And there's a great quote from him in this article. He says, these aren't houseplants. This is a horticultural endeavor. You keep pruning the roots and the branches to keep a bonsai small, keep it within bounds. You water it, repot it, coddle it. It's like your dog or your cat. You don't walk away from bonsais without giving them the good graces of your care. So Chase worked for years as a landscaper in Allentown, Pennsylvania, and he traveled to Japan in 1963, where he met a bonsai master, Kyozo Yoshida, and he spent a year as his apprentice, and then he fell completely under the spell of bonsai, which as an art date backs to 700 in China. And then he shared this nice little story that was related to his apprenticeship. He said it was amazing, and he said he just could not get over the plants, but he didn't speak Japanese, and his instructor did not speak English. So he said they communicated by gesture. And then he tells the story. He didn't say prune this way. You watch him prune and shape, and you learn by watching. I started by pulling weeds, screening soil, and watering. Finally, Yoshida let Rosada work on an overgrown tree. And he said, a man came to the nursery and sat there all day watching me work on the tree, pruning, wiring to shape the branches. And once in a while, he nodded his head, Rosada remembered. Turned out, it was his tree. There are a number of wonderful little vignette stories in this article. And I would love to have Chase Rosada as a guest on the show. There were two posts that made the science segment this week. The first is 14 facts every daffodil lover should know. This includes some daffodil nomenclature as well as common names. In fact, if you hear someone in England mention lint lilies, they're talking about daffodils. Daffodils are probably my favorite spring flower. There are at least 25 different daffodil species and up to 13,000 hybrids, according to the Daffodil Databank. In the inspiration spot this week, there are two pieces from Asia. The first is an article from businessinsider.com, and it shows that Seoul, Korea, is getting a $33 million sky garden. It's going to feature over 24,000 plants. You have to see the images that they're providing with this. It's pretty incredible. And then from Japan, there is a wisteria flower tunnel. It's in the Kawachi Fuji Gardens that are located in Japan, and it's a wonderfully seamless blend of architecture and nature. This garden features over 150 wisteria plants, 20 different species, but the tunnel is the crown jewel, and people often describe walking under the blanket of blooming wisterias as a very tranquil experience, which makes sense since the wisteria is a symbol that Buddhists use to represent prayer. The pictures look magical, serene, almost otherworldly. It's breathtaking. Well, that's it for the Garden News Roundup this week. All of these posts have been shared in the listener community on Facebook. So if you'd like to join that group, just head on over to Facebook and type in Still Growing Podcast Group, and you'll have access to everything. Well, I'm very excited to introduce you to my guest today, Trevor Johnson. He's the resident farmer at Henry Ford West Bloomfield Hospital, and he has a special role. He oversees the hospital greenhouse, and he coordinates the educational programs that are related to it. 
Trevor aims to help people become more focused on how food is our medicine and how strongly it contributes to our well-being. So it's totally kismet that he's working at a greenhouse hospital. He's passionate about educating young minds about nature, where they fit in, and how they can work with it. And a typical day for Trevor in the greenhouse has him making sure the crops receive proper nutrition, starting seeds to provide a continuous supply of lettuce, and monitoring for plant health, insects, and signs of disease. Trevor's very hands-on in this greenhouse, and it's important to know that the greenhouse is 100% hydroponic. So he's growing all of his plants in water instead of soil to maximize and maintain space for patients, staff, and visitors. Hydroponics allows him to have more control over plant health, and he uses only 10% of the water that would be needed in soil-based farming. The greenhouse was opened in September 2012, and it's a product of the vision that the leadership of the Henry Ford West Bloomfield Hospital had. They wanted to serve as a national model for wellness by providing organically grown food to their patients and community. And I found my chat with Trevor to be fascinating and inspiring. Well, hi there, Trevor. I am so excited to speak with you about the Henry Ford West Bloomfield Hospital Greenhouse. This is a unique farm-to-hospital model. Hey there, Jennifer. I'm excited to be with you. Well, this is going to be fun. Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to work as the head gardener, resident farmer at the greenhouse. Well, I think my story leading here starts back when I was in high school I was interested in just about everything. I loved science. I loved cooking. I loved politics. um, I loved using my body. And it was kind of confusing going into college because I had to choose something. And I said to one of my teachers, I figured I'd be going to college forever. Wow. Um, But when I applied to school, I saw horticulture on the list. And I just kind of blindly checked yes, Hmm. not really knowing uh, the path that it would lead me down. And as I uh, went to school at Michigan State University for horticulture, I worked at the student organic farm, and I was able to apply what I learned in class uh, right hands-on at the farm. So it really gave me a a holistic experience of growing food and selling it directly to people, marketing, and all the details you need for that. Um, And as I graduated college, I worked everywhere from uh, Monroe to Lapeer in Southeast Michigan. Uh, and I was farming directly, uh, with direct marketing, selling it directly to people, uh, usually organic, um, or organically based methods. And, uh, I was also working on a couple nonprofits, uh, the boards of nonprofits, uh, with a fellow farmer that was very well established in the area. Uh, her name was Michelle Lutz and she was, uh, the originating resident farmer here at Henry Ford West Bloomfield Hospital, Hmm. and uh, we got in contact with each other through some farming activities and also through um, her work here. Uh, I was working at a gardening center during the off-season, and she needed assistance getting her hydroponic systems going, and I was working with the people whose expertise could assist her. So she got in contact with me, and I was able to come out a couple times and help her get the systems established. And one day I got a call when uh, she found another position and she recommended me for this one. And I've uh, been really happy here doing good preventative health care work, growing produce. 
That's fantastic. You know, I had Eric Sanrud on the show for his company, Mighty Axe Hops, and we talked about this very thing, how important it is to get kids into agriculture and to see it as a career potential, as a career option for them, because so many people dismiss it out of hand. If their parents weren't farmers, they just think, well, that that could never be something for me. Um, I'm just so interested in how wonderful your initial experiences were. Is that common? Is Was there a pathway that was kind of built in there? Or how did it end up being so fantastic for you? Well, that's a fairly complex question. Um, I think a lot of it is just luck. I was in the right place at the right time around the right people. Um, and I just had the right gumption for the tasks that were put in front of me. I think one of the things that really makes me attached to this kind of work is is my passion. And when I was in, in college, I was able to get trained in something called permaculture, which is an ecological design science that is uh, multidisciplinary and in-depth. Uh, it's a design science around creating sustainable human environments. And it's like supercharged organic gardening. And when I learned about that, I saw uh, it really really came clear to me that horticulture and growing food is a part of all of human society. And no matter what we do, it's a part of, uh, of our society very in-depth. And it's not just about growing produce. It's about designing sustainable human settlements that can work into perpetuity here on planet Earth. And that really grabbed me by the heart and pulled, it currently pulls me forward uh, to do the work that I do. And much like the, the fellow that, that grows those hops, you can find a lifestyle in many different ways in this holistic approach to designing our, designing our environment around us. And uh, permaculture has been one of those things that has really uh, kept me going in this world to see that it's something that um, can help us from top to bottom. Mm, I love that. I love that. Well, back in September 2012, Henry Ford West Bloomfield Hospital in Michigan launched the organic greenhouse with the goal of using the resultant crops in patients' meals. How did this idea for the greenhouse originate? It was a combination between a donor uh, who wanted to give us money for preventative health care measures and the, the Henry Ford Health System mission to create an exceptional patient and community experience you know, for everyone that comes here, so we received a $1 million donation from an anonymous donor, and that provided the funds to build the greenhouse and the education center that we use for our programming to grow the food. It's the basis for all that we do here. The only stipulation with it was that the hospital had to fund the resident farmer position and to uh, fund the greenhouse as it went forward, but there wasn't any health care dollars uh, spent to build uh, the greenhouse itself. Um, and it's, it's based a lot around kind of a Disney experience. You know, when you go to Disney, you, you spend a fair amount of money and you leave with Disney ears and memories mm. and going to a hospital is kind of like the same thing. You spend a fair amount of money and you leave with something it's tangible, it's your body, but you're not leaving with an actual product. And we want to make sure that experience from beginning to end, uh, is it shows our commitment to us being there for the health of the whole person. And that includes the food they put in their mouth and the experience they have when they're walking around our, our beautiful hospital. I love that. You know, I was thinking as you were speaking about 
the way this anonymous donor set up the grant, I had just spoken with Rick Sherman, who was the keynote speaker at a schoolyard garden conference here in Minnesota. And one of the things we had talked about was that a common point of pushback for schools is their concern that there's not someone to shepherd the schoolyard garden after maybe the initial, you know, excited person departs. So I love the foresight that this donor had to establish that position and, and put that stipulation in place because that really ensures that the program's going to go on, that you, they've that there will always be a caretaker for the greenhouse. Yeah, and it's really in the hospital's best interest to have a program like this because we don't want people to come and uh, visit our beds if they uh, have something that could easily be prevented by, you know, having fun and eating, you know, good food um, rather than being lethargic and not eating such good food. So we want to put ourselves out there as a place where people can come and be healthy rather than a place where you come and get your diseases managed. Exactly. Well, I love that. Well, I read a quote from Mark Smallwood. He's the executive director of the nonprofit Rodale Institute in Cutstown, Pennsylvania. And it recently partnered with St. Luke's University Hospital in nearby Bethlehem to help support operations of the hospital's 10-acre organic farm that yields 30 varieties of vegetables and fruits served in hospital meals to support patient recovery. New mothers, in fact, are sent home with baskets of fresh produce to help them get started on healthy eating habits with their new little baby. And he said, in a paradigm shift, hospitals are realizing the value of producing fresh, local, organic food for their patients. I'm very curious, do patients and families appreciate the efforts by your greenhouse? I'm really happy they could get that uh, size of a farm going and to provide that level of, of you know, production to, uh, to their patients and residents uh, with a 10-acre farm. It's amazing. Um, if we had that resource, we'd probably be doing something similar. Um, our, you know, our resource is a 1,500-square-foot uh, hydroponic greenhouse. Uh, so we don't have 10 acres to do something like that on. But um, I like to think of the greenhouse more as a verb than a noun. So it does many little things throughout the community rather than just being a place where people go. Um, and I think people uh, feel the effects of the greenhouse in many different ways. So, uh, of course, the, uh, the patient guest meals uh, have herbs, uh, some of the kale or some tomatoes from uh, the, the greenhouse. We do tours for the community that are uh, we do both free tours free tours and uh, tours that uh, we charge and we might release some ladybugs or have a very specific talk on a topic that people might want to have a conversation about. Um, we do educational programming in the community. So we'll go out to schools and we'll talk about the greenhouse or we'll plant seeds together. I've worked with schools to create uh, little hoop houses or gardens of their own. Oh, I like um, that. Yeah, so we grow um, transplants for a program that I do during the growing season called Henry's Market on Main, which is a, a produce market that we run right on our main street. Uh, it's our main main uh, aisleway through the hospital, and we sell Michigan produce from a um, 
local wholesaler called Cherry Capital Foods, and we resell it there right on uh, on Main Street. So it looks like a farmer's market, but we're getting all of our produce still from Michigan farmers, but it's just a little bit simpler to manage than a, than a large-scale farmer's market. Mm-hmm. Um, I also grow lavender in the greenhouse, and then I'll dry those flowers, and I'll sell it at market, and I'll also have uh, sachets or just you know a pound of lavender given to our our uh, wellness area, uh, Vita, and they will use it in sachets for our patients and guests. Um, so there's a, a, a particular patient that your question reminds me of. He was a, a gentleman that was in one of our rooms, and he uh, was he's a gardener and he didn't have the time to start his tomatoes because he was in the hospital. And it just happened that I was growing uh, tomatoes for market and he was able to, um, I gave him a couple uh, from uh, the greenhouse so he could start his garden in the springtime, even though he was in the hospital. So there's lots of different ways the greenhouse works in the community. And I'm always looking for new ways uh, for it to do something out there. Uh, And I I get nothing but gratitude from the people that we talk to. Lots of little things rather than one big thing. So the experience can be felt in, in a multitude of ways rather than in, in one, you know, just one way. Hmm. Well, and of course, for people who are listening that are wondering why it's called Henry's Market, this is in reference, of course, to Henry Ford. So there's a lot of ways that you kind of still recognize Henry Ford in, in Detroit, no doubt about it, right? Yep, we 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 are a, a big name here. We like to stay attached to it. That's fantastic. Well, how about in terms of healing, Trevor? I would assume that some patients would love the hands-on healing experience of tending the garden. And I myself am so fascinated by the world of horticultural therapy. Are patients able to experience that at Henry Ford Hospital Greenhouse? Yeah, uh, we welcome... Uh, at any time, patients or visitors into the greenhouse for a tour to check some stuff out. And we are working on a, a mobile cart to bring the greenhouse to the patients in their rooms uh, just for convenience. There's less, uh, a lot of people are, you know, they're here in the hospital and they're in their rooms. And uh, having them come out to the greenhouse, they have to walk outside. Uh, we'd rather bring that experience to them so they can have a little piece of it to bring home. Now, the greenhouse has been open for five years. What has changed in that time? How has the greenhouse evolved in that time? Use organic uh, principles and practices in the greenhouse. And I have been trained in organic uh, soil growing, but not organic uh, hydroponic growing. So this has been a huge learning experience for me. And I have really been honing my craft of organic uh, hydroponics uh, in uh, as my time has, has gone on here. You're really growing... Uh, a whole set of microbes as well as your plants that you have to tend. And that has been uh, an interesting uh, pathway for me to go down to add little things to the systems that, uh, you know, boost our nutrient rates or a home for microbes to live to process uh, some of the larger compounds that are in our nutrients. That has been a really interesting uh, path for me to go down. Um, one of the main more scientific trials I've been doing is uh, uh, trialing varieties of tomatoes. So we grow cherry tomatoes in the summertime and I, you know, I get a ton of catalogs and I'm sure it's overwhelming for lots of farmers to figure out what they want to grow. Uh, But I went through and I found all the varieties that did well in 
greenhouse environments, uh, high humidity, long-term cropping environments. And I tested three of them last year, and I found one, a Sakura, that has done the best for me. And now this year, I have been doing grafting. So I took a rootstock, and I cut the top off, and I took uh, another plant of the Sakura, and I uh, clipped the top onto that rootstock, and I have more vigorous plants that are going to grow this year based on my trials last year. So it's uh, I very much base my work here around incremental growth, trying not to make big changes, um, but making little changes that we can see if it's the right direction or not. Um, and that keeps us going forward in, in fun ways. Hmm. Uh, we have a couple of new programs that I've uh, unveiled the last couple of years. One I've called Growing Healthy Kids, which is like reading time in the garden for kids. So it's geared towards uh, stay-at-home parents and their uh, pre-kindergarten children. So they can come here on Wednesdays, which is um, also the day of our market. They can enjoy uh, some story time in the greenhouse, releasing ladybugs. They can have lunch at our cafeteria and then visit market. And then by the time they go home, it's nap time for their kids. So it's something to add some fun to their day. I like that. Now, uh, when you were speaking about grafting, are there resources mm -hmm. that you especially refer to when you're trying something new like that? Is there something that you might direct listeners to if they want to attempt something similar? Well, my main resource has been Johnny's Selected Seeds. I purchase my rootstocks from them and my clips. And uh, if you're ever attempting something like grafting or microgreens, they send you this wonderful little packet that is a, a primer on it. And they're, it's a really good primer. I learned a lot this year by doing this, and uh, next year will be even better. And Johnny Selected Seeds, even though their prices could be a little higher, you tend to get um, get what you pay for there uh, in their their service. Hmm. Tell us a little bit, uh, too, if you wouldn't mind, maybe one or two tips after going through that. Is there anything you would tell a rookie grafter, things to maybe oh, think about? Is there anything that you would share? You're calling me out. Okay, so this <laughs> year um, I, did my, I did my grafting, and they say to do it uh, in the shade, so no direct sun, and I... Um, I completed it and things were looking really good and the instructions say put it in, in like a dark place for 24 hours and after 24 hours it was looking great. Everything had turgor pressure inside. It was looking rigid and then it said put it under soft light. So I took it out to the greenhouse and it was uh, kind of a cloudy day so I, it wasn't going to you know bake the plants I imagined but I came out a little bit later and the sun had been just frying the greenhouse for the past hour and every single plant was wilted. Aww. So I took it back in and I sprayed it with, with mist. And um, uh, after 24 hours, it was clear that I, I lost a whole lot of the plants by that. Uh, but I, I got about 10. And these are either going to be very stressed and unproductive plants or some of the most hardy plants that I've ever grown. So I'm uh, excited to see and next year do better. So okay. the tip would be to make sure you give your plants enough time before you put them into any kind of intense sunlight. Uh, the directions would have put it under a, a T5 light, uh, and like a light bulb, uh, with only half of the lights on, and I, I, I didn't do that. 
you overdid it. So that would be the equivalent <laughs> of like recovery, right? Being in the recovery room after surgery, you've got to stay in there mm-hmm. a little bit. You can't just go walk out of the hospital. You got to stay there and you right. got to get babied a little bit. Is that why they're doing it's that? Very much cutting edge. Exactly. <laughs> yes. It's very much cutting edge. Uh, I know recently someone just got a hundred percent hand transplant and a face transplant. And that's essentially what I'm doing. I'm taking two genetically dissimilar plants and forcing them together. Interesting way of putting it. I like it. I like it. Helps people <laughs> understand. I work in a hospital, but I, <laughs> and I do clinical stuff, but only on tomatoes. Only on tomato. There you go. Dr. <laughs> Dr. Tomato. Dr. Tomato. Yes, that's right. Well, what's a typical day like for you, Trevor? I can't even imagine. There's probably no two days the same, is there? Well, it's, it's very much a, a day that's based on the season, and it changes with the sun. So um, are you familiar with hoop houses, unheated growing structures? I am, but let's pretend that I, I know nothing just for listeners who, you know, who don't know about them. So I grow in a greenhouse, which is a, a heated structure made of glass and steel, and it's high-end, and it's gorgeous. And if I was a farmer in Michigan and I wanted to grow produce, I would not want to spend a million dollars on a greenhouse. Um, so they grow in unheated greenhouses called hoop houses, and they're structurally very different. It's usually just an aluminum rib uh, with some structural support covered in two layers of plastic, and then they fill those two layers with air, and that acts as a uh, heat trap, like a cloud layer, so farmers can grow um, year-round. So the limiting factor in that kind of growing is uh, temperature and sun. Uh, you can't grow a tomato in the wintertime, not only because there's not enough sun, but you don't have the temperature. In my greenhouse, I have the temperature uh, during the wintertime because I have heat. I can turn it up to whatever I want, but I don't have the sun until just around this time. It's just turned past 10 hours of daylight here in Michigan, and uh, I germinated my tomato plants uh, maybe like uh, five or six weeks ago, and as the sun has increased, now it's time to plant them because uh, they can be sustained by the light of the sun. We don't have any uh, supplemental light in the greenhouse. So um, in the wintertime, I have to grow things that tolerate a lot less light. So kale is one of the main things that our kitchen uh, uses that also grows well in my hydroponic systems. We use it in a, a wonderful kale salad that we can get you guys the recipe for. Um, and uh, that is what we grow in the wintertime. So it goes from tomatoes to kale like that. Um, uh, but my general day uh, is very early. I like to come in, uh, you know, a little bit before the sun rises. And the main thing I do with the greenhouse is just observe and interact. And that is really the first principle of permaculture is that you have to just, you have to work with what you're trying to design with and you have to interact with it on a daily basis to see how it lives and breathes. And I do that in the morning with a, a meter that I have that tells me the pH and the conductivity and the temperature of the water. Uh, and I take notes based on how things are changing, how plants are looking. Pest scouting is a big thing. I harvest, you know, pretty regularly in the summertime. It could be every other day for the tomatoes. But in the wintertime, without a lot of input from the sun, it can be like once a month. And even the herbs that we grow they'll sustain themselves in the wintertime, but they won't grow a whole lot. So we'll, we'll harvest maybe uh, once or twice a month. And then you know, more with the seasonal stuff, I like to 
clean the greenhouse, you know, once a year, maybe around Thanksgiving when there aren't a lot of tours in here. But it's it's very much attached to the sun, and I like that lifestyle. I like that too. Now you mentioned the the ten hour mark for sunlight. Is that kind of the mm-hmm. sweet spot for someone in a greenhouse that they've got to get about ten hours before you can really start rocking and rolling there? Um, I like that number because it's a little bit past what in, uh, they say tomatoes can grow in. I'm not looking just to grow tomatoes, but to grow tomatoes well. Okay. So. Um, I, I, I start them, I'm already starting them crazy early for any farmer in Michigan. Uh, and I just want to make sure they don't have a, a early struggle in their life because there's not quite enough sunlight out there. Um, or they, you know, they get too lanky because it wasn't time. Cause I do have supplemental lights to grow the seedlings under, but as soon as they get big enough or the time is right that I can just put them underneath the sun, I'd rather just have them under a natural daylight system because that's what they're going to be in for the next, you know, 10 months. That's right. Well, hey, and by the way, great job walking people through what a hoop house is. That's so helpful <laughs> when people understand this terminology. And and then they can understand the difference between what you're doing and your beautiful, beautiful greenhouse. I, I've seen the pictures. It's really gorgeous. I'm definitely growing with the top end of the growing systems here. It's uh, it's spoiling. Yeah, it is spoiling. <laughs> I tell you what, though, it's got to be a pinch me thing when you're there in the early morning and doing your scouting and all the things that you're doing and you're in this beautiful environment. It's so wonderful. Yeah, it's very nice. Well, let's chat a little bit more in depth about hydroponics because everything at the greenhouse is grown hydroponically, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I need to disambiguate a little bit here. There's hydroponics, which has been around for quite some time, and it traditionally uses synthetic nutrients to grow plants. Uh, It's a sterile kind of a growing method, and it's really, it's a production-based method. So I use organic methods. So just like if you're growing organically in the soil, you're trying to grow healthy soil to grow a healthy plant, um, I am trying to grow my equivalent of a healthy soil. So the healthy soil has a diverse microbe population, has lots of different matter in it that the microbes can chew on and release nutrients to the plants. For my organic hydroponics, I am putting in microbes into my reservoirs and using uh, nutrients that are derived from things like composted seabird guano and fish meal and rock phosphates. And those aren't the things that plants take in. They don't take in a molecule of of seabird guano. They take on an an ion of nitrogen. Um, And that needs to be processed by microbes it from that larger form into something smaller. So I am managing uh, this little microbe population in the water that circulates around all the plants, um, as well as growing the plants themselves. So in the greenhouse, I have uh, three main growing systems. One is the NFT system, which stands for the Nutrient Film Technique. And this is a recirculating system, which means the water goes through over and over again. And it's What most people think of when they think of hydroponics, it's the channels uh, sitting on a table with a big tub of water underneath it. And this is designed for short-term crops. So for me, I'm growing kale and basil and cilantro in it, but a lot of different farmers use it uh, for like head lettuce, baby head lettuce and things like that. Uh, And whole livelihoods are based on NFT systems here. And our other one is a beta bucket system. And This is a drain-to-waste system, which means that water goes through the system but doesn't recirculate. 
So I know that might sound a little wasteful, but my job is to give the plant just enough water that it uses it and then give it a little bit more rather than just pouring water through it all the time. Um, And this system is designed for long-term crops. Each plant, I have 60 sites for this uh, system in there, and each site is a two and a half gallon bucket that's uh, connected to a drain. And I put in that bucket perlite and peat, a combination of that as the media. So there's no soil in there. And I put the tomato almost all the way at the bottom of that. Um, And then it will get covered with a peat cover um, because anywhere where there's light nutrients and water, you're going to get algae and we don't want algae. And the nutrients will go on uh, through a drip stake through that peat cover. And the tomato will grow up uh, and be trellised with a string that is attached to a, a trellis system on the ceiling. So in the wintertime, I grow, I just take out the tomatoes and I grow kale in there. And I grow some massive kale plants. And they, uh, I just ended up taking them out the other day, but they looked like palm trees when I were done because they were like Gosh. three foot tall and oh. harvested from the bottom up. So it looks like we could have a little luau in there. Oh, wow. That's great. <laughs> That's awesome. So the uh, last system is the plant tower system. Okay. And this are these are stacked uh, styrofoam containers, uh, vertically stacked, and uh, they have 32 different points on them where I can put an herb or uh, a green, and I have eight different towers here. And this is a drip system that is a drain-to-waste designed very similar as the, the Beto system, but it's, um, it's also designed for long-term crops, um, but crops that are going to end up coming out at the end of the year. Um, so we'll grow chives or, or Swiss chard or something for a year, and then after that we'll refresh the plants. Uh, and that's where most of the herbs come from, from the greenhouse. So tell me the difference. Like, why would you grow in the plant tower system over the NFT? Are they both for the short-term crops? Or they're, or or you would see the plant tower as being maybe a little longer term than, than the NFT crops? The plant tower can be longer term. So uh, there's the gentleman that uh, invented this thing down in Florida. He uses it for determinate tomatoes. So on these towers of multiple determinate tomato plants, he is doing a mass harvest, uh, a staggered planting and a mass harvest all at once of every tomato that's in there. So um, you could use the plant tower system for tomato production, um, but it doesn't have a large root mass. So you're not going to get as long-term crop of it as if you're trying to grow an indeterminate tomato. And then he staggers a planting so he can just replace the plant when it's done and get another turn out of the entire system. So you can grow it, for, you can use it for uh, other, um, for growing other stuff. It's just that the, the Venn diagram of, you know, what the hospital wants and what hydroponics grows well doesn't always overlap perfectly for everything. Okay. Wow. I have many follow-up questions for you here, so bear with me. Um, Go ahead. The first is... Perlite. I started using mm-hmm. perlite way back when I was listening to the to Mike McGrath's You Bet Your Garden. He's a huge perlite fan. And I order my perlite in these huge, huge bags from Amazon. Yeah. And I Four love when those feet. bags come because I have no upper body strength. <laughs> but when I need to lift a bag of perlite, I just feel like a rock star because, you know, they're light yeah. as can be. But this box comes from Amazon and it's huge. It looks like I'm getting a couch or something and it's all perlite. So I get a kick out of that. When you're using it for these Beto buckets, do you get perlite in huge quantities as well? Yeah, I um, the same garden store that I, I worked at, Green Thumb Garden Center in Ferndale, is the one I use for a lot of my supplies. And I get those 
probably very similar four cubic feet bags that stand about four foot high. And uh, yeah, I, I use them just like you do. Wow. Now, let me ask you this about the Beto buckets. How mm-hmm. do you spell Beto? I'm, I'm just not familiar B-A-T-O. with that term. B-A-T-O. 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 Is it short for something? Like, is it an abbreviation of something or they just call it that? I, I don't know. I think um, that might be the Americanized term for it. Because okay. the other term I know for it is Dutch bucket. Oh, okay. So uh, let me do, I do want to ask one other question about these Beto buckets. Mm-hmm. You know, if if I was growing tomatoes in a container in my backyard, next year I would not grow tomatoes in that container because of the residual, you know, with the disease and whatnot with tomatoes, you need to rotate that. Do you, Mm -hmm. when you're done growing tomatoes in a beto bucket, do you need to thoroughly wash that out before you plant again? So I have a very clean greenhouse and I tend to take the approach of if there's nothing wrong, don't fix it. And unless I see a disease in the greenhouse, I'm not going to go through and scrub it with a fine tooth comb. Okay. You know, I, I, I rinse the material out. Um, maybe uh, once every other year, we'll get in there and really scrub it. If, if algae got bad or something like that, I, 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 I try not to overdo it too much. Okay. Now, my last question for you is just kind of a sentimental one. Of the three systems, if you were going to go home, start your own greenhouse, and you could only pick one of the three that you could use at home, which one do you have the softest spot in your heart for? Oh, man. Well, i got to say that the always right gardening answer is it depends. If I, wanna, <laughs> if I wanted to make money, I would probably do the Beto bucket or the NFT because I could sell so many uh, tomatoes or heads of lettuce or basil with those systems. Um, but if I wanted to be, you know, more of a, a home gardener and get a diversity of things, then I think the plant tower would be a better way to go because being able to put a, you know, have a tower of determinant tomatoes, you know, planted on a stagger and then another tower of herbs, you know, gives you the diversity of things that you want at your house without having to go out and buy all that stuff from the store. Very true. Very true. Well, what are some of the benefits of hydroponics over traditional soil-based growing? And the other question that I know a lot of people ask is, is there truly an accelerated growth with hydroponics? Uh, Yeah, there is an accelerated growth. And we're talking about days here. We're not talking about, you know, weeks or months. Okay. Um, But when you're looking at things on an economical world, those days or weeks add up to another couple turns uh, for the year. And if you're, you know, that turn is 10,000 heads of lettuce, then that's, that's not just a drop in the bucket. Um, so, yes, there is some accelerated growth. Uh, with traditional hydroponics, uh, you are essentially force-feeding the plant. You know, there's everything the plant wants all the time, and it's just able to go gangbusters. Organic is a, a little different in that without a meter that measures every specific nutrient, um, you're still kind of trusting the microbes in your inputs for, for everything. So I don't necessarily see that same accelerated growth. With my friends that are they're gardener, gardeners and farmers around here, I see us getting about the same speed out of our stuff if you take account for uh, when, how early I planted it. I've seen through hydroponics that people have gotten uh, more per yield uh, because you're not only growing faster, um, you're, you can sometimes 
space plants together in a way that uh, gets you more money per square foot or input that you're going for, and that leads directly into economics. So if you're you know growing for money, then um, that kind of stuff leads to you know a, a business plan that gets you into the black. That's right. And from a resource point of view, it uses less water. Uh, if I were to grow my NFT system uh, that's full of basil in the ground, the 300 gallons of water that I use uh, to irrigate it for two or three weeks would only last a couple days, and I'd have to apply another 300 gallons of water um, for that to that space for it to mostly evaporate into the air or trickle through the earth and not be used by the plants. Oh, interesting. So if you're in a desert environment, um, hydroponics is a, a good way to use your limited resources of water. And it's uh, kind of the same world for fertilizer. You know, you're applying fertilizer directly to the plants. You're not putting it into soil that may have runoff. And if you're doing that on a larger scale, we know the impacts of that, with like dead zones in the Gulf and things like that. Um, With hydroponics, you can treat the water as you would uh, in any municipal system. You know, you can put it through the wastewater treatment, uh, treat it as sewage, whatever your locality requests of you to do. Um, but it can be treated back to usable water. Okay, okay, that's that's good to know. Well, this is the part where I fell in love with your with your hospital greenhouse because I love growing basil, and I read that the estimated production of basil is seven hundred pounds per year out of your greenhouse, and that mm-hmm. sounds like heaven to me because I I use yeah. my basil to make pesto, and I know you're doing the same. But why the focus on basil? Is it just because it's so versatile or, or because so many recipes call for it? What, why the draw there? Well, I referred to this earlier. There's, um, I just kind of use this Venn diagram idea. There's what the kitchen wants and the list of that. There's what grows well in hydroponics and the list of that. And then there's also what my market on Main can use um, and the list of that. And the one place that all of them overlap in a huge way is basil. Our kitchen uses it fresh. It also uses it uh, in the form of pesto. Uh, it grows really well in hydroponics. There are great varieties that are like bred for uh, high humidity environments that, that yield really well. Um, and market will process, well, they use that same pesto that the kitchen uses, and we'll sell it at market in $5 for the little containers. And that's a, a, a local value-added product right there. So we focus on it because we have a, a home for all that stuff. If I had my dithers and I had, you know, 10,000 square feet of greenhouse, we'd still have a lot of basil, but we'd maybe be able to focus on other stuff because we'd be able to saturate that market. But right now, we could grow probably 100% basil and still wouldn't be able to satisfy the kitchen's needs for basil and the market's needs for pesto. I love that. Okay, let's talk about this for just a little bit. In terms of that Venn diagram that you keep referencing, I would love to see that. But I'm very, very curious about maybe an ingredient or a product that the kitchen would love to see you grow that you just don't because it's not what for whatever reason. You just don't. Is there something that would be at the top of their list that they would say, oh, my gosh, Trevor, grow this that you're just not able to do? Oh, I think I get most of those requests from uh, the gentleman who runs our Indian station. He's looking for all sorts of exotic types of herbs that um, don't grow in our climate or don't do well in hydroponics, or I would need to grow so much of it to satisfy his need that I I wouldn't be doing anything else in the greenhouse. Um, So 
you know, I, I have to disappoint sometimes, but I got to say there's most of the herbs that the kitchen uses, I can either uh, grow for them or we can get locally sourced. Um, I think we can satisfy, we satisfy the kitchen pretty good. Okay. All right. Well, in terms <laughs> in terms of the of the dut of the Beto buckets, my next question was going to be about this term that I was running into over and over again when I was reading about your greenhouse, and mm-hmm. it's called Dutch buckets. But you you mentioned earlier that these are the Beto buckets. Why are they called Dutch buckets? I think Dutch bucket was its original name. It was uh, maybe distinguished um, in another country. Uh, and we, when we brought it over here, maybe we branded it or it got patented under another name by another company. I, I don't have the full story on that. It's just like uh, how our common variety, how our varieties of tomatoes go by many different common names. So you, people might be talking about the same variety but have two different common names. Or maybe tomato is the best example, but uh, a specific plant. I think they're talking about the same thing, but it's different genus and species. Okay. Now, the other question I had about that is you mentioned earlier that you're using the perlite in these and then you're adding peat. What's the what's the right ratio there? Is it more perlite to peat? And then what role does peat play? So I've been experimenting with that myself. My previous two years, I've done uh, 100% perlite and I found that that required the, the, the drain through on that is so large that it's tough to sustain for with nutrients and with water. So I'm trying to add more water holding capacity to that perlite, which oh. is where uh, the, the peat comes in. I'm actually using cocoa. Excuse me. I've been saying peat this whole time. Um, I use coconut choir. And my ratio is uh, one of the four cubic foot bags of perlite with one of the bags of cocoa. It's one of the, I think, 1.5 cubic foot bags, the most common uh, bags we find in the store. It's one of those sizes. Uh, last in the, this last winter, I tried a half bag of the cocoa to the perlite, and there still wasn't quite enough water holding capacity. The water didn't wick across uh, the whole surface as much as I'd like it to, uh, so I'm increasing that this year by a half bag. Tomatoes, you know, specifically why I'm doing it is for these tomatoes, they just use so much water. My plants are going to be three stories tall after a uh, season is done, and if there's not enough water holding capacity uh, in the media, then this irrigation system I have gets uh, outpaced by the number of waterings it can do per day. It can only do nine. And when you need more than nine waterings to, uh, per day, you know you have to change something else in the system. Oh, interesting. Okay, now we've got to talk a little bit about this uh, cocoa choir, I think is what you called it. Mm-hmm. I know what cocoa bean mulch is, and I know what those cocoa mat fiber things are that you can line containers with. What is this product that you're using, mixing it in with the perlite? Describe it to me. So it's it's coconut husks. It's the inside shell of the, uh, it's a waste product of the coconut industry. Uh, it was being thrown out for a long time, and they've found all sorts of different uses for it these days from stuffing your car chairs with it to uh, making a hydroponic media with it. And it it needs a little bit of uh, manipulation before it can be used well. It uh, can either hold salts or have salts already in it, so it needs to be washed pretty well. Um, uh, But other than that, if you find a bag that is ready to use, then it's, it's good to go. And every single one of these Dutch buckets is going to have a drain tube attached to it at the bottom. Is that how that works? Yeah, and there's a, a centralized drain line that runs uh, down the middle of these three aisles, each with 20 different plants in them. 
um, and the plants, the pots go on that drain uh, in a, a staggered fashion. So what other crops are growing at the greenhouse? What are some of your, your main go-to crops every year? So my, my go-tos have been tomatoes and kale. Um, I grow cherry tomatoes uh, because even though all of our employees in our kitchen are Henry Ford employees, they still use some traditional kitchen methods. And if you've ever seen a commercial tomato slicer, it's designed for uh, pretty much a half-ripe tomato. Um, so I'm not going to grow them half-ripe tomatoes. I'd like to grow them nice, juicy, big heirlooms. But uh, they don't have as much use for that as they would for the, let's say, like the cherry tomatoes that they use in the salad bar all day. Oh, okay. They'll get put in all sorts of little uh, vegetable containers. Um, they use that in mass, and it doesn't uh, upset the workflow that they already have uh, in the kitchen. It's really important to to a kitchen's you know kitchen's efficiency. Okay. So it's it's and the whole slew of different herbs that I have, um, uh, so chives, uh, garlic chives. Um, dill, parsley, rosemary, lavender, um, all different things that the the kitchen will end up getting. Wow. That would be one of my favorite parts. After the basil would be all the herbs that you're able to grow. <laughs> when you need that little bit of dill uh, for fish, it's right there, right there at your fingertips. Can't beat it. That's right. Now, where does all the produce go? So the produce all goes into the main kitchen, and that gets uh, processed by all of our prep chefs, uh, into patient meals, into guest meals up at our uh, Henry's, which is our cafeteria, and the uh, basil will get processed into pesto, and that'll get uh, frozen if it's not being used immediately, um, and it gets divvied into patient meals. They're used in the Italian station that's upstairs, our, our pasta station. It's a very popular uh, addition as our, our homemade pesto. So you must have basil being processed every day or every week for sure. Uh, well, I harvest every week, and they'll do a, a mass processing. Um, I'll I'll harvest about 16 channels per week when the season really comes on strong. At, at the beginning, we'll maybe do one or two uh, a month, you know, before the sun really gets intense in the summertime. Basil loves that heat. Yes, absolutely. Well, and pest management is something that greenhouse growers always have to contend with. And I saw a video from August that your main pesticide is ladybugs. Is that true? Well, actually, it's not. Our main pesticide isn't ladybugs. Um, we use the ladybugs for uh, kids' events, and they are, it's just something the kids can release. They are predators, um, not maybe not the most voracious predators that you could release in a garden for what they call biocontrol, trying to fight bugs with bugs. Okay. Um, uh, I have been using uh, predatory mites and minute pirate bugs. Uh, so those are two very small insects um, because the prey that I have for them tends to be very small. I have kind of a low-level thrip issue just because thrips can come in on seed and I germinate lots of seeds. Um, so I'm getting predators that are scaled for my prey. Thrips are so, so tiny, and these mites are even tinier, and they will chew them and their eggs up. Oh, really? uh, And the minute, yep, absolutely. So they they're, uh, have mandibles, and they're going to eat them. And then the minute pirate bugs, they're piercer suckers, so they're kind of like mosquitoes. So they'll uh, suck the, the juice out of um, eggs and adults as well. So those just don't have um, the pretty face that you want to, uh, you know, work with kids with. Hey, kids, let's spread mites. (laughs) 
No, yeah, yeah, it's it lands it lands pretty flat. But when yeah. you talk about ladybugs, it, it you know it gets a roar from them. Sure, and they're they are good predators. Um, but the adult form of any insect is mostly interested in reproduction and not eating. Um, so if you could get a whole bunch of ladybugs and uh, make sure they have a pollen source and then make sure you're uh, getting their life cycle to complete, then you're getting the aphid gators, which are the really voracious um, predators. And they're the larval stage of the, of the ladybug. Hmm. Interesting. You know, I talked to Shane Smith early on in the show when the show was first starting and he wrote the greenhouse gardeners companion book. And we had a lovely conversation about pest management in greenhouses because it's an issue. And a lot of people don't think it would be because you're in this contained environment. So they assume you don't have well, that's any what pests. makes it bad. <laughs> yeah, That's exactly right. And he said, and it has always stuck, stuck with me. And I, I have incorporated this into a lot of my own pest management in the garden. And that is, uh, he said you can accomplish so much with sharp streams of water in terms of, you know, blasting pests off of off of plant material. Do you try anything like that? <laughs> yeah, I release the warriors against them mostly. Um, I, I pride myself in running a really clean greenhouse and spending a lot of time doing pest scouting. And um, uh, I like I'm a preventative manager, so I would much rather put um, uh, regularly put in mites and then pirate bugs and stagger those to make sure I keep anything that might come in uh, to a very, very low level than wait until I see a larger problem and then have to uh, approach it with something more coarse like a stream of water or maybe a chemical. Um, Yeah, I, I try and there is an acceptable level of pests and as long as it's not damaging the crops, it's not spreading any kind of disease, then no work is good work. I see. Not having to uh, do any of that stuff. It's kind of just like hydroponics. You're, you're relying on uh, growing other things to grow the thing that you want to grow. So using microbes to grow plants. Here we're using you know insects to fight our other insects. So if our main goal is to fight the bad ones, then take care of the good ones. Yes. is the best approach in my opinion. Now, uh, one last question on the on on your use of these insects in in fighting uh, bad bugs in your greenhouse. How do you source them and how do you release them? Yeah, so I source my ladybugs from Green Thumb Garden Center and I have a relationship with a biological supplier called Colpert Biological and they supply uh, like the greenhouses that are in um, Canada that do the tomato production year round, they are the reason that they exist because they need biological control year around. And uh, that's where I get my mites and my new pirate bugs and maybe lacewing larvae from. You have to ship them from point A to point B and you want to make sure that that line is really tight. And um, that's why I don't get them from a I'm good with ladybugs from a retail establishment, but when it comes to something that is, you know, really tiny and delicate like mites pirate bugs, I'd much rather get them from a place that's going to overnight them to me in an insulated container, something mm. like that, you know? Okay. And then do you just open it up and let them go, or do you have to do something uh, with them? So the ladybugs, it is kind of that simple, just open and shake. You might spray them with some water first because they've been in a cold environment and they're just desperately seeking some water. Um, and there are release containers that you can hang uh, in plant areas, but I tend to 
I do the, like the sprinkle approach. So put some of them on a place of a leaf where it's not going to fall off and do that a couple different places around the greenhouse and just spread it nice and thin. There are, I, again, the catalogs that I get are multifaceted and multifold. And I saw a backpack where you can, it's like, like a leaf blower, but you put in bugs. Oh, yeah. Interesting. It's, it's, it looked kind of adorable. Could you imagine having that job? Like you <laughs> fill up your backpack with mites, and then you go and you turn on this tiny blower, and you just walk around the tomatoes all day blowing mites on gentle streams of air. Oh, my gosh. You know what? We're going to crowdfund and get that for you for Christmas, Trevor, and then I'm going to get a picture of you <laughs> with that backpack on. Uh, I know, love it. Get it for a large, struggling farmer. My <laughs> 1,500 square feet is good with a, a salt and pepper approach. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So do you use, like, little Parmesan shakers from uh, Goodwill? <laughs> They kind of, they already most of them come that are small insects. They come in a container just like that. Oh wow! Well, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> There's us. always some kind of media or something inside, like a wood chip or something, uh, something that they can just hold onto, like a rice hull. Yeah. Oh really? Now, what purpose does yeah. that serve? Well, well, the mites are predatory and they eat other mites and they don't discriminate. So you will end up with one mite in uh, that container if they don't have uh, something to hide from each other on. So uh, <laughs> I, it's just a funny story in my mind. Could you imagine how full and mighty that one mite would be if it <laughs> ate all the other 15,000 mites? Okay, oh, that, that I love it. That would be really disgusting looking, a giant mite. They're yeah, not, they're, not, they're not handsome. <laughs> no, they're not handsome. Well, tell us about crop harvesting there. Is it all by hand? I'm assuming it is. Yeah, it's it's... I know 1,500 square feet is not very large, so when I'm taking stuff down, it just requires uh, a bucket, maybe some sawhorses for the NFT system because I can just pull full channels off of the table uh, of mature crops and take stuff out of the channels like that. My first year here, this is a fun harvesting story, I was growing tomatoes, but I wasn't growing them with the trellis method that I have now where the tomato will grow to the top of the trellis system and then I'll loosen a spool to drop the plant down. I was growing tomato plants all up in the uh, superstructure of the greenhouse, having to get on a, an eight-foot ladder and harvest oh. things. And I learned from having, you know, harvesting in the feeding sun, taking four hours on ladders, that there has to be an easier way to do this. There's no way this greenhouse was designed to harvest like this. And uh, I discovered these little spools that we had with with string on it, and um, it's really quite fun. As the year comes to a completion with the tomatoes, you see. Uh, essentially like 36 feet from the base of the plant to the top and all this empty vine going along the ground that was a productive part of the planet. At one point it was the top of the plant, but uh, it just keeps going and going. Um, and I keep all my cherry, even cherry tomatoes to a single liter. So there's one plant, uh, one liter per plant. Uh, so I get really good fruit off of this uh, single liter cherry tomato. Isn't that fascinating? Now, I, you mentioned the spools and the string. Are you growing them up the string then? Yeah. So um, let me try and do this visual thing over this podcast medium. Um, directly above the row of Dutch buckets is a bar that's attached to the ceiling. And on that bar are attached a number of eyelets that are right above the plants. And attached to those eyelets is this uh, spool of string. It has a hook in the top and then a, a little bracket that holds it. And it can be uh, loosened to loosen string up. 
And at the very beginning, I loosen that spool, bring the string all the way to the bottom and clip it to the bottom of the tomato. And then as the plant grows, I just spin it around that string. And you can imagine during the first couple of months, it's just going to grow up to the top, keep going up and up and up. And as it reaches the top of that spool, then I push the spool and it releases like six or eight inches. And that slack of the plant that was on the bottom ends up falling into this trellis system, uh, like a table system that I have on the bottom to keep the vines up off the ground. And that will keep extending and extending while the height of the plant essentially stays the same, but all the extra goes uh, to the bottom. Oh, isn't that interesting? That reminds me an awful lot about the, the way that uh, Eric Sandroot is growing hops with Mighty Axe Hops. You know how they do it in the hops yep. yard where it's growing up the string. Exactly. Except hops are trained to do that. I mean, they only grow yeah. straight up with the tomatoes. And you, you harvest them once a year. That's once right. Once you're done, you go up and you take the whole thing down at once. Yes. Yeah. Yes, that's right. But you must have to do a little bit of guiding there with the tomato. Do you not with the string? Do you have to kind of clip it to it or how do you do that? Well, it's really, the tomato is a very interesting plant. It has these opposite leaves that if you, uh, you know, if you just wrap the top as it grows up around the string, it falls very easily into the, like the armpits of each leaf. And it stays there, and eventually it calluses over, and uh, it does what's called an inclusion. It'll actually include that string in the body of the uh, plant and it won't disturb the vascular system. It's just there to support it. And, you know, at the very bottom of the plant at the end of the year, you can't even see the string anymore because it's absorbed within the plant. Get out of town. It grows right around it, literally envelops yeah, it. Just like if you see a, a tree growing next to a fence, how it ends up growing around the fence. That's called an inclusion. Isn't that interesting? Can't stop nature. No. Wow. Determined little buggers, aren't they? Mm-hmm. Hmm. Well, what are some of the favorite recipes that you share with folks to get them cooking and or do something with the produce that they might buy either from the market or the, the pesto from from the hospital's uh, kitchen, something along those lines? Well, the main interaction um, that I have with people in produce is at Henry's Market on Main. And I have a, a whole system there Well. We will take recipes from our, our recipe books, and we have recipe books that go back so far. I have only scratched the surface, um, and I find things that are based around maybe a specific uh, plant, let's say uh, root crops or parsnips or carrots, and we'll take that recipe and we'll scale it down from a hospital scale to a human scale, and uh, we will put it out there right next to it. So if someone doesn't know what, say, a uh, kohlrabi is, which is pretty common. They can know how to prepare kohlrabi in a warm or a cold dish. Um, so they can be encouraged to try something, try something that's new. And we always like to sample stuff out there. So if there's something really uh, unusual, especially like kohlrabi, we'll be cutting some up and, and handing it out to people there. Um, but I got to say my very favorite uh, with our pesto, since that's one of the main products of the greenhouse for market, is a grilled cheese uh, nice and crispy with some cold pesto on top after it's all grilled. And the juxtaposition of the cold and the warm crunchy, I, I heard your, I heard you say it just then. Your mind knows that that's delicious. Yes. And, and, and it's, uh, it's really tasty. Oh, my gosh. How can we even carry on the interview now after you've mentioned that? I'm so <laughs> distracted. Oh, my gosh. That's awesome. I can't Lunch wait to next. try it. Yes, that's right. 
Well, and and speaking of cooking, I've heard that you have a 90-seat demonstration kitchen in the hospital where healthy cooking classes are offered to the community and then Henry's Cafe. And I see there are cooking classes on your website, and I noticed just for March alone, you've got Indian favorites, you've got a taste of Tuscany that's happening on March 22nd, and then Mediterranean cooking that's happening on the 29th of March. Do you provide produce for these classes? I provide any produce that is available. You know, if they if they require something uh, well ahead of time, they know they're going to need it. I could I could grow something, but as usually works out is the classes that people want don't always overlap with the produce that I'm growing in the greenhouse at the time. It the produce I'm growing more overlaps with the kitchen's needs, um, which isn't necessarily these classes. So if they need something that I have, it is they're free to take it. Um, uh, and we're a resource for the hospital to use. So if there's, um, I always encourage the chefs to to plan with me as long ahead of time as possible. But our the intimacy in our relationship, the fact that you know we all work for Henry Ford, we see each other every day. Um, we are already uh, pretty uh, tight with what uh, the we know what the hospital will use and what I'm growing. Yeah, I, I you know the longer I talk to you, the more I keep thinking about, and I think every listener should be thinking about their own hospital in their own community, and then imagine these possibilities where you would be going to the hospital to get cooking classes, you can tour the greenhouse. This is such a different approach, and I think most people just wouldn't, this wouldn't even enter into their conscience, you know, that they would be going to the hospital to get this. It's the, the, they only go there when they're sick. They're not going there, you know, when they're healthy. I love this. uh, This whole concept's just fantastic. we're quite special in our greenhouse, but it's really becoming um, the responsibility of healthcare systems to take care of their uh, patients, the users of their healthcare system, not just as they're in there, but uh, through their recovery. Um, and you'll, I think you'll see a lot more health systems providing uh, these kind of uh, services. Um, maybe not having a million dollar donation for a greenhouse. It's awesome if that could happen everywhere. Yeah. Um, uh, but just providing this kind of, of basic education, uh, the resources to use, that is step one. Mm, I like it. Well, and, and you and I talked before the beginning of the, this uh, interview, and I want to make sure we get a little bit of time for you just to address this. But I was talking to you about the greenhouse, and you reminded me that your focus is education. It's not necessarily 100% focused on on growing what's in the greenhouse. You have a broader yeah. mission that that's just part of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, it's in Henry Ford Health Systems, you know, our mission, our vision to be of service to the people that uh, that use our system. And this is, you know, it's, it's not just the, the hip thing these days. It's an effective, like I'm going to get clinical real quick. It's an effective intervention. This is a way for people, if they have a, a, a health outcome that is it's or a potential health outcome that could be negative, this is a simple investment that a health system can use, uh, can do to uh, assist that person uh, getting to that better healthy place. And it's, it's not a heavy lift. It's not, it's not, uh, changing the clinical world that's providing produce. I love that. And do you find uh, in terms of your relationship with 
maybe other growers in the community. I know that you're you're working to source things for the market. Are there relationships that are happening because of the fact that you are the resident farmer there? Uh, yeah, I, I'm definitely an enzyme here. I'm, I'm here to do things that maybe they wouldn't have been able to do without me. And I think the relationships that I've built to make market what it is, um, you know, the experience that people have there is a product the relationship I have with, you know, Cherry Capital Foods, uh, you know, the place we get our flowers, uh, we get bread from a, a local baker, um, and it's those relationships close to home that, you know, they build health for people and they build a community, which is what builds health in the long term, have place to belong. I love that enzyme metaphor. That's excellent. Now, how do you coordinate and communicate with the hospital chefs in terms of inventory, harvest, that kind of thing? I'm imagining if I was the chef there, I'd be coming to you going, okay, hey, we've got this, you know, big thing next week. Do you have this? Is that kind of what happens or do they just know what's going on in the greenhouse? Uh, both and they know what I have because we've we've worked on it and we we've had discussions you know before a seed was planted um, and uh, if if they need something they they just know they have to get at me well enough in advance you know when I started here sometimes I got a request for you know cilantro tomorrow and I say I'm sorry I can't grow cilantro in a day <laughs> um, but the the that was made possible by the fact that we're both Henry Ford employees and we. Both are on site every day, and if there's a question like that, um, it's can, we can find a direct answer. Um, and I know there are a lot of good food service industries or food service providers out there, um, and I know sometimes that relationship can be fraught if you're trying to bring local food into an institution where they don't manage their own food system. Um, but we're very, very lucky here in that we have uh, not just committed people, but people who have the same mission and vision and not necessarily a, uh, an economic goal for making money off of our food service. Um, we're really here for the experience of the patients and the visitors, and that's, I think that comes through. Mm. Well, and you mentioned economics. That's a nice segue into my next question, which is in terms of costs, what has been the impact of the greenhouse on food costs for the hospital? The produce that the greenhouse provides is really just a drop in the bucket of what the kitchen uses overall. We have uh, like 190-some beds, and we provide uh, meals to a ton of people every day, and a 1,500-square-foot greenhouse just isn't quite what they need for production. So it's less than 1% is the number that I give people, and it's probably a fraction of that 1%. Um, uh, So the produce that I grow, it's transferred to the kitchen, um, and they they pay me for it, but it's not like um, it's not a, a true um, market relationship. It's more of an internal kind of a thing. Okay, okay. So you're not replacing per se where they're going to source food, but you're a nice supplement. Yeah, because of this, my scale, I really can't supplement. I really can't source, but I can uh, supplement. Um, but again, to uh, the greenhouse and I guess me being a verb more than a noun that uh, I have uh, connected the kitchen with local growers, Cherry Capital Foods, uh, local um, uh, meat uh, providers to get that kind of stuff into their kitchen. So even though it's not coming from the greenhouse, it is coming from Michigan. A lot of it is coming from Michigan providers. Okay. 
Well, I, I thought the quote that you offered on your bio at the Henry Ford West Bloomfield Greenhouse would be a nice segue into any final thoughts that you might have about the importance of organic growing or growing food in general. You said, everything grown at the greenhouse can relate back to food and how it nourishes our bodies. Yeah, absolutely. As uh, a farmer, I've been farming since 2003, um, I would say that it's the importance of local produce above organic. If you're at a market and you can uh, choose between local and organic, I would choose local above the organic. But if you could choose both, that's fantastic. Okay. Um, it's about nutrient density and having all that good stuff in the produce. Um, if it came from California, it's not necessarily there. That importance of local produce not only is helpful for you, but it's helpful um, for the local economy, for the relationships that you can build uh, around you that, you know, again, creates that healthy person. And this is, you know, I, I kind of said this at the beginning. This is why I do what I do. Farming and horticulture and permaculture is in, in, incorporates everything from science to philosophy to design uh, to uh, hydrological cycles um, uh, and, and spirituality and religion. Uh, and that is the whole of who I am. I, as a person, am a little bits of all those things. And that's what really makes me go forward and makes me love what I do. Um, I think that's, that's the kind of uh, work that is, I think, going to build, you know, recreate a really interconnected and uh, closer-knit society. Where we have relationships with people that are, um, provide the things that we need. Well, I love that. I love that, Trevor. And I think it's, it's again, it's so good for people to understand all of those benefits to being in this industry. You know, I have been saying all year since I read about this book, it's Tom Friedman's new book, Thank You for Being Late, How to Survive in the Age of Acceleration. And he talks about what it's like to be, you know, living in this day and age where everything's happening so quickly. And one of the things he talks about is this doctor that is a heart doctor. And he, and he was talking about what he felt was the number one affliction that people suffer from today, but also well into the future. And he said it's loneliness. Most people would think the heart doctor would say, you know, it's heart, heart disease, and he said, no, it's, it's loneliness and isolation. And one of the ways that we com combat that problem is to anchor ourselves in the world. And being connected to growing things is one of the best ways to do that. And when you're doing that, you're connecting to other people. So I always encourage people to, to begin to talk to other folks, whether it's their kids or their neighbors, about gardening as a way to anchor yourself in the world. And I think a lot of what you're talking about here in terms of the, the gratification and the satisfaction that you get from your job has to do with that very fact that it's very grounding and that it's very anchoring for you. Yeah, yeah. And the future that we're going for is not something that we're trying to go back to. We're trying to go forward in uh, probably what would look more like an upward, upward spiral. You know, we're trying to take our lessons from the past, uh, take our own vision for the future, and continue moving forward. Um, not, not going back to a rural agrarian lifestyle, but to be able to cre create something that's 
you know, more contemporary, maybe more usable for human beings, but also that gives us that grounding, that gives us that connection that, you know, when we, when we don't have it, there are clear health effects from it. You know, our, our loneliness is, is impacted. Absolutely. Well, Trevor, I can't thank you enough for being on the show today. I want to make sure that people know how to get a hold of you, your website, your contact information. Where would you direct people to go if they're looking for more information or they want to reach out to you and learn from your model? So uh, the greenhouse can be found on the interwebs, uh, henryford.com. There is a classes button there. And if you specify West Bloomfield, you can find all the different things that are happening here. Uh, I have some fun stuff that's coming up. Uh, I just want to mention uh, June 7th is the start of our uh, Henry's Market on Main that we've been talking about and the new program we have, Growing Healthy Kids, doing uh, reading time in the garden. Uh, for stay-at-home parents, uh, we want to encourage people to come check us out for that. Uh, you can find my contact information on the uh, website, but if you'd like, I can just give it to you here. Sure. All right, I'll just give you my contact information. My email is T. J-O-H-N-S-2-5 at H-F-H-S.org. That's T-Johns-25 at HenryFordHealthSystem.org. All right. That sounds great. Well, I so appreciate your time today, Trevor. This was absolutely wonderful and such a great glimpse into what I think will be the future of hospitals across the country, probably, and the world. Yes, indeed. It's been my pleasure speaking with you. Thank you for the opportunity. Thanks, Trevor. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Well, that's it for the show today. I want to thank Trevor Johnson of the Henry Ford West Bloomfield Hospital and Greenhouse for being my guest. I want to thank my lab members, my listener advisory board, for their great help and guidance this quarter. They are Beth Engel, Denise Pugh, Denise Gardens in North Mississippi, and is a contributing writer to Mississippi Gardener Magazine, Amy Fairbanks Von Aachen, Patricia Chandler Newport, owner of Backyard Urban Gardens out of Kego Harbor, Michigan, Deb Gibson, and Peggy Ann Montgomery, the brand manager at American Beauties Native Plants. I also want to thank my team at Podfly Productions. Eric Begay is my editor, stepping in for David Myers. Ayn Kadina is my copywriter, and David Gregerson is my project manager. I could not put the show together every week without their help. So thank you, you guys. Just a reminder that I'll have all the generous information that Trevor shared on the show today, along with the Garden News Roundup, on my website. It's sixfootmama.com. That's the number six, F-T-M-A-M-A.com. And that's also the home for the Still Growing Podcast. So just head over to my website, click on podcast, and today's show will pop right up. And don't forget, I'd love to have you join the listener community, which is the Still Growing Podcast Group on Facebook. I hope to see you there. If you get a chance to join, go ahead and complete the listener survey. I'd love to get your feedback. Well, I hope you guys get a chance to see some amazing pictures of the desert in bloom. That super bloom is absolutely incredible, and it doesn't happen every year. So enjoy it. The pictures are amazing. Have a great week, everyone. Still Growing with Jennifer Ebling is a sixfootmama.com production made in lovely Maple Grove, Minnesota. Still Growing is a weekly gardening podcast dedicated to helping you and your garden grow.